0: Jordan, last week we started talking about worship, and we started with a definition. We'll do that again today. We picked a part part of it, and we're going to finish that process today. But music is obviously an important part of our worship diet, a central part of our worship diet here at Gateway, and for many of us individually. So I just wondered if you had some comments about how you pick the songs that we sing.
1: Yeah, so normally we sing three, anywhere from three to six songs on a Sunday morning, depending on the service and the time. And those songs are usually, the set is crafted by whoever is leading that week. And I put together a list of criteria that I use when I'm selecting songs, and every song that gets picked for Sunday morning kind of goes through all of these filters. And it's a much longer list than I have time to really dive into, but I'll just point out some highlights. For instance, I've split it into three categories, and the first is related to the worship or the sound team. If you look at the last question, are there any sound or setup restraints? So that would be something like through the month of April when we had community theater and the Bye Bye Birdie set up on stage. We were a little restricted. We had uh, a
0: production of the play Bye Bye Birdie, if you're visiting with us. And the, the, the set was on our stage the whole time. So, so we did
1: a more stripped-down acoustics set that whole month. And feel free to come up and ask me about this list or any of these afterwards. For the actual worship set itself, how do all of the songs interact with one another? We're not just picking individual songs and then throwing them together. We're we're crafting a, a whole set that works together. So one of the things I look at on the bottom there, is there enough diversity within the set? I like to kind of mix up style and how well we know the song and who the song is by. And hopefully, even more diversity as far as style goes in the future as we grow as a team. For us as a church, for instance, one of the the main ones I use every week is coordinating with whoever is preaching and trying to match the songs, the theme of the songs, to the theme of the service or of the sermon.
0: So, we have a certain style, and for us, as I said, music is kind of a key component for us or it's an important component anyway and we do this kind of band production and we work a lot on it we practice on Thursday nights and you guys craft the songs and you craft the whole set together but this is a worship experience Jordan and it's not a performance so why invest the energy having it be good you know if we're we're not thinking about performance
1: sure yeah we don't want this to be a concert we we just want to be we want, as a team, want to help facilitate worship, and so this is our style of music, and we found that it works well for this church and this area and, and this time, and it's the music that a lot of us listen to, so we want to do it with excellence. Psalms talks about playing skillfully, so we want to honor God through our gifts in that way. I'd also say that we don't think this is the right way to worship definitely honor all different styles of worship whether it's a giant choir or gospel singing or just piano and a singer completely simple love all of those different styles and we'll probably use more of them in the future but we had a phrase from my first mission trip to with gateway to Nicaragua it's not wrong it's just different <laughs> and so we recognize that there's a difference between being useful and being necessary And we think that what we do here is useful, but it's certainly not necessary to worship. Uh, You can worship in, in any context. And the last thing I would say is that we as a team recognize that while we can facilitate and help in worship, if we're bad, we can also be a distraction. And we don't want to be a detriment to worship at all.
0: Okay. Thank you, buddy. All right, so we started last week with a definition for worship, and we worked out from there. We kind of picked that definition apart. We're going to continue that today. And if you're visiting with us, thank you so much for coming. Honestly, we're honored to have you. If you've only been here once or twice, or if this is your third time, welcome. This is a little different today. This is almost like a family meeting. How are we going to do church together? We're in a phase of our life here at Gateway where we're asking that kind of question... And part of that is, how do we do Sunday morning? What is this, and how do we do it? So we wanted to start with the big picture, you know, what worship is, what we're trying to do here, what's the goal, what's the target. And then in that, in that conversation, I'm going to talk pretty specifically at certain points about what we do here and why. So we started with the definition, and here it is. Whole self-engagement with God. This is worship. Whole self-engagement with God on the terms that he prescribes And in the way that he alone makes possible. Including adulation, devotion, and reverential acts of submission. So we started breaking that down last week and we made four points. The first point we made was worship involves our whole lives. So we said that definition included nothing about Sunday morning. Worship is is our whole lives. It's everything we do. Second thing we said is scripture calls and we base what we do on the Bible. So scripture calls for worship that is true as opposed to false. In other words, it must be done in the way that he prescribes. There's a wrong way to worship. That's noted throughout the Bible in many examples. It's happened in all of our lives individually at times. Third, true worship is our response to God's activity on our behalf. We're not making it up. We're not going in and seeking after something. We're responding to what God has done on our behalf essentially. And fourth, True worship includes adulation of the true God. And that's where we got pretty practical. We started breaking it down. That word adulation means excessive bragging. We excessively brag on the true God in worship. So we'll have three points to make today. And the middle point is really the preaching point. That's where we're going to focus. But point number one, true worship includes expressing our devotion to the true God. So it, remember, it includes adulation, devotion, and submissive acts of service. So true worship also includes expressing our devotion to the true God. So our worship is not just about, you're awesome, Lord, you do wonderful things, thank you. It does include that, and that's adulation, as we said last week. But true worship also includes devotion. The biblical words associated with the theme of devotion are love and devotion. And the principal idea, don't miss this, the principal idea behind our devotion is commitment. I'm going to say more about that in point number two. But let's just get an idea of this devotion aspect of worship by looking at Psalm 37, 1 through 4, and Psalm 18. Psalm 37, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. So this begins with instruction. Don't be about envying the people around you. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away, giving us this eternal perspective. And now we get to the worship part. And notice the kind of themes. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Take delight as an expression of worship, but notice the companion piece to that. Trust in the Lord. It's about commitment. Go to Psalm 18 and we're going to read this one together. It's the same kind of theme, same kind of loving God, delighting in the Lord and these other themes that are associated with it. Let's go old school. Let's, uh, some spiritual aerobics. Let's stand out of reverence for God's Word. And we're going to read together Psalm 18, 1 through 3. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I have been saved from my enemies. And don't sleep on the idea that he said, I love you, Lord. And then instantly he begins to talk about how great God is. And from that, he acknowledges, I've acted. I've called on the Lord, and he's been my refuge. You may be seated. Expressing our devotion in worship is why our prayers often focus not only on love for God, but also on our commitment to Him and our surrender to Him. So, in the model prayer, Jesus taught us to pray and He said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's a way of saying your name, your character, your reputation is awesome, it's great, it's set apart, there's nothing like it, adulation. And then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. In my home this week, and at work this week, at school this week, this afternoon, in my agenda, in what I'm going to try to get accomplished, I want your kingdom, I want your will to be done, even as it is in heaven, perfectly so. We are devoting ourselves by Him, and that act of devotion is a commitment to Him, committing ourselves to Him. This is why we sing songs at Gateway like, Lord, I give you my heart, I give you my soul. You get the idea. It's a song of commitment. Or we sing the old hymn, Take my life and let it be consecrated. I'm giving myself to you. This is an act of devotion. The principal idea is commitment. This is also why we use confessions in worship. And we will in a little while today. We'll say a statement of faith leading us into this meal. We use confessions because our devotion carries with it the idea of commitment. I'm committed to this set of beliefs, to this truth. Point number two. And as I said, if you miss everything else, don't miss this. This is where we're going to hunker down for a minute. True worship is an action. It is not primarily interior. True worship is an action. It's not primarily interior. If you're familiar with the Psalms in in the Old Testament, then you know the language of worship. It, It often features themes like lifting up your voices, lifting up our hands, bowing down. Worship is an action. It's something we do alone and with others. Remember, in the world of the Bible love, was primarily and overwhelmingly understood as an action. There's an emotional element, of course, but it's far more subtle element than it is in our culture. The Bible was a culture of arranged marriages. And some of you come from African cultures where it was predominated by arranged marriages. In Indian culture, at least a generation or two ago, it was almost overwhelmingly arranged marriages. Some of you are from arranged marriages. The idea of finding the love of our lives and with love there being defined or understood as this passionate heart flutter. That idea didn't really exist. Or at least it was very secondary. Now, I'm not saying that emotions aren't critical to worship, nor am I saying that the heart is not engaged. That's of course not the case. But technically, the heart is more involved from a biblical perspective when we're talking about adulation. Adulation, as we said last week, is associated with thanks and praise. And when we thank God, we do so from a place of deep, heartfelt gratitude. So, Lord, you're awesome in all your ways and all your works. This is where the heart is engaged. But when the biblical author says, I love you, Lord, what he means is closer to, I surrender to you and I will serve you with all my heart, than it is to, I feel passionately toward you and my heart is worn by even thinking of you. Let me say that again. When the biblical author says, I love you, Lord, what he means is closer to the idea, I surrender to you, and I'll do whatever you say, than it is to the idea of, oh, I'm so passionate about you, and and I'm warmed by even thinking about you. I had my first crush in the fifth grade. Jackie Lou Stanley sat right behind me in fifth grade class, and she sent me a note. Do you like anyone in the class? Yes. Box. No. Box. She passed it up to me. I checked. Yes. Passed it back. Who is it? Pass me the note back. I wrote back. I'm not going to tell. She wrote back. Are they in the first row, second row, <laughs> third row, or fourth? <laughs> she knew it was her. I had a series of crushes in high school. I remember being in the 10th grade, and I would go six halls out of my way to make sure I could just pass her. We we didn't have any classes together. Just so I could pass her in the hallway. What's up? (laughs) There were a series of these. You can tell by that just how effective I was. My biggest crush of all was on my wife, Diane. First time I met her. Massive crush. I never had a crush on Jesus. And I don't think he's disappointed by that. I don't think that's what he's looking for. He's looking for commitment. He's looking for my life. He's looking for me to be all in. So how does this relate to our conversation about worship? Well, some of us have become convinced that what we're looking for in worship is heart flutter. We think the goal of worship is that we will be emotionally moved in a powerful way every week. Listen, I do want you and I to be emotionally moved in worship. I believe God wants that as well. In fact, if your emotions are never touched, then your obedience and your commitment will falter. If your emotions are never touched, your obedience and your commitment will falter. And the Bible is full of encounters with God that were overwhelming emotionally. People just knocked out by an encounter with God. But that's not the goal of worship. That's not the point. It's not the centerpiece of worship. Worship is an action. It's not primarily interior. It involves adulation, devotion, and reverential acts of service. You get it? So let me offer a couple of warnings if I can. First of all, I want to offer a word to those of us who tend to be charismatic. You may have grown up in a Pentecostal setting. Or in college, you got exposed to charismatic worship and you you were all in. Which is awesome. Here's the warning. If in our worship we spend time and energy straining to feel God's presence or straining to hear God's voice, we are in danger of making our worship time about ourselves and not about God. We're in danger of making our worship about our experience and not about our adulation, devotion, and submission. Now, Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Of course, we should be listening for God's movement when we worship him. Whenever we experience emotion here in worship or on our own, we should lean into that. Allow it. Follow it a bit. It may be that it's purely emotion. Sometimes, goosebumps are just goosebumps. I can't remember the title of it, but Jordan was telling me the other day about an article he read that something like God is not in the synthesizer. You know, sometimes the music can make us feel goosebumps, and sometimes those are just goosebumps. But sometimes God's in it. So don't discard it too quickly. In the same vein, I'm not trying to suggest that worship is rote confession and declaration. That's why some of us have left liturgical settings. They they seemed lifeless and not real, frankly. People just saying words. But don't chase the opposite direction. Don't chase some emotional experience with God and make that the point of your worship. Worship is an action. It is not primarily interior. That's a warning to those of us who tend to be charismatic in our worship habits. And we've got that here at Gateway. You're in the closet, but we got it. But we also need to hear a warning to those of us on the opposite side of the street. Some of us never seem to experience God. Our emotions are never really engaged. We need to be warned as well. Psalm 62, 8, and I could have used a lot of references. Psalm 62, 8 says this, trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him for God is our refuge. The heart is involved in worship. The heart is involved in a relationship with God. Worship of God is whole self-engagement with God. Mind, body, will, emotions. So if we are someone whose heart is never really engaged in worship, it occurs to me that there are three possible explanations. You may have another. But there are at least three possible explanations for why our heart is not engaged in worship and whether or not that's okay. Uh, Explanation number one. We are there in worship to, to give God all that we can of all that we are. We are choosing to devote ourselves to God. We are offering praise to God, but we're just not typically very emotional or very demonstrative people. As I said last week, we are a computer engineer, which is another word for lifeless. Just kidding. In life in general, we're not very demonstrative. One of our strengths may be that we're very steady emotionally. We can be boring at times, but boring can be good. This doesn't mean that we never experience emotion in worship or more generally in our relationship to God. It means it's pretty rare for us, but that's okay. We have other strengths. We just need to remember to enjoy the emotional encounters when we have them and remember your emotional encounters, if that tends to be your disposition. It helps with your commitment. Second option, something is blocking you emotionally. And this is not okay. What I mean is, you have no problem going nuts when India beats England in cricket or when the Capitals win the Stanley Cup. But when it comes to worship, you're disengaged, you're not in, you're physically not in, you're emotionally not in, you're removed. Now this is another sermon, but let me say for now, this is not okay. You're not in a good space. And I encourage you not to continue to live with this. Just because you've gotten used to it doesn't mean it's okay or that it's normal. At one point, Old Testament leader, Nehemiah, exhorts his followers. And he says to them, he's he's telling them, don't grieve. It's just an exhortation. He says to them, the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, you are allowing yourself to be cut off from a significant source of strength if you continue to live emotionally cut off from God. So just two quick pieces of advice. Number one, acknowledge it. I may be emotionally stunted in my life or in the area of worship. Number two, get someone to pray for you. This is not a good space to be in. You're cutting yourself off from a source of strength. Third possibility, it may be And we have to be honest about this. It may be that you've never really made a heart connection with Jesus. You've never really understood and acknowledged all that He's done for you and what He's doing even now. You've never had a moment of recognition and surrender, a moment so dramatic that Jesus Himself called it being born again, like starting over completely. What if today is the day for that? I'm not talking about religion, I'm not talking about coming to church. I'm talking about recognizing that your self-ruled life has left you far short of what you long for. Recognizing that you have violated God's design for you. You've not done what he desired and you've violated your own conscience. You may have been sensing truth in what you've heard at Gateway or in a place like Gateway. You may be sensing it today, right now. You may want to step into that truth. And it's easy to do. You need to, on your knees, at least emotionally and in your heart, you need to let him know, I've blown it. I'm far from you. I need you in my life, Jesus. I believe that you died and literally rose from the dead. And I believe that that has an impact on my life. I believe it relieves the burden of my life. I surrender to you. I worship you. Please come into my life. Fill me with your presence. Help me to know you and to grow in you from this day forward. If you're able to say that and mean it, then look for your heart to change. It will. Okay. Big point number three. True worship involves reverential submission. True worship involves reverential submission. This was the central idea behind the Old Testament sacrificial system. The Old Testament saints brought gifts of sacrifice and surrender to the great God. It was almost like, and this is how they would have understood it, it was almost like a lesser king paying homage or paying taxes to a greater king or a conquering ruler. The words associated with this theme biblically are surrender and bow down and fear the Lord. And you'll find these same themes in the songs that we sing here at Gateway. And you find these themes often reflected in the manual of worship, the psalm. Let's look at Psalm 66 and Psalm 89. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds? So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing the praises of your name. So he's telling them to come with a reverential act of submission. Come and say to God, how awesome are you, God? You're so awesome, your enemies are afraid of you. Then he says, come and see what God has done, his awesome deeds for mankind. He turned the sea into dry land. In the rest of this psalm, he's going to chronicle all of God's great deeds. They passed through waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. He rules forever by his power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise up. What he's causing in you and I is this reverential submission to God. And then he's going to tell us to come and bow down. All right, Psalm 89. Same kinds of themes. Let's do some uh, spiritual aerobics. Go old school with me and let's stand out of reverence for God's word and we're going to read this one together. Psalm 89. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness, too, in the assembly of the holy ones. So hold on for a second. This assembly of the holy ones, there are some scholars who believe that that assembly of the holy ones is maybe the royal family and his counselors or a collection of priests. Perhaps more believe that that assembly of the holy ones is even saints in heaven and angels. Let's go on, for who? For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? Of course, this is a rhetorical question. I mean, the answer we know is, th- the psalmist is begging for, it, is no one is like him. Let's go on. In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. Whoa! Pause for dramatic effect. God is greatly feared. This is what causes reverential acts of submission. This is a part of our worship, acknowledging how awesome He is and even recognizing our awe of Him. I'm going to say in a minute, we don't often get this exactly right at Gateway. We tend to be one of those environments that's like, you know, yay, Jesus, and that's great. But there's not enough here of, wow. Where were we? For who in the skies? Let's go there. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround Him. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You may be seated. I want to acknowledge something here. And this doesn't have a therefore. I don't have a solution. We need to be honest because this is a family meeting this morning. I think we struggle with this as a culture here at Gateway and at all churches like Gateway. I don't think we adequately express reverential submission in our worship. I was listening to an interesting podcast this week, Terry Gross Fresh Air. She was interviewing Paul Schrader who has written, and I believe directed, the new movie, First Reformed. You may have, some of you may have seen this, but you, many of you have seen that it's out. It's supposed to be a good movie. Paul Schrader's an interesting character. He's been writing movies since the 70s, and a lot of his movies are pretty rough. Uh, uh, he wrote Taxi Driver, some of you remember that movie, and Raging Bull, both of which starred De Niro as a freak But this movie is about a priest in the Dutch Reformed Church, and it sounds like a fascinating movie. This priest has an emotional crisis and a crisis of faith. Something dramatic has happened in his life. To just set up a super interesting dynamic, the church that this priest, and Ethan Hawke placed the priest, he was also in on the interview. The interesting dynamic for this priest, the church has essentially died. It's now really, it's an historic site, and it's a museum in effect. It's in upstate New York. And the church, the building, is owned by a local megachurch, interestingly, a megachurch that probably has a worship ethos a little bit like Gateway, maybe bigger and better, you know, kind of like Gateway. And Schrader sets up that dynamic intentionally so. He said this at one point in the interview, it's really fascinating. He said he feels like worship in the contemporary church today and he understands worship well. He grew up, by the way, in the Dutch Reformed Church went to Calvin College and, you know, was a pretty confirmed Calvinist, Christian, evangelical, and then rejected that and ran away from it. And now, later in his adult life, he's kind of warming up again to his faith. He says, you know, you can run away, but you can never really get away. So he says that he believes church today, and I think with some insight, has divided into two streams. I'm going to quote him here. One of those streams is, this at least the church in America. One of those streams is what he called the old traditional devotional service based on silence and Bible study. The other stream, he says, based on the arena, which is entertainment-based performance. He's very generous and gracious. He allows that there are good Christians in both And he believes that both are, as Jordan said this morning, he didn't use these terms, but they can be useful. They're not necessary, but they can be useful. He says he favors the silence model because it allows for, listen to this, it allows for boredom. And he says, people don't go to church because they're bored. People go to church to get bored because there's nowhere else in life right now where you can get bored. Our lives are so full and we are so frenetically connected, you don't get bored anywhere else. So I go to church to get bored and it helps me organize my week. Interestingly, don't you think, to the degree that Schrader is right, I believe that our worship style, our worship setting is influenced by the arena, by the performance-based service. And it may be that in that, and it's appropriate, it's a wonderful way to worship God, but it may be in that we miss a little of the reverential submission. Ethan Hawke followed that up. She asked Ethan Hawke about his religion, and Ethan Hawke was fascinated. He goes to an Episcopal church in New York City, and he said he loved Schrader's phrase. He added to it. He said, I love your phrase, institutionalized boredom. He said, I realize that's why I go. It allows my mind to do some good and creative things. And he lamented the fact that he hasn't introduced his children to enough of that. I don't know if we allow enough of that here at Gateway. If if we facilitate, if we foster enough of reverential acts of submission. By the way, I don't have a therefore. This is a family discussion. I'm just acknowledging that for us. True worship involves reverential submission. Okay, so worship is whole self-engagement with God on the terms that he prescribes and in the way that he alone makes possible, including adulation, devotion, and reverential acts of submission. All right, a couple of random observations, and let's end with this. Number one, why adulation? Why excessive bragging? Doesn't that make God an egomaniac? I mean, it seems this criticism has been leveled at Christianity before. It seems like God is constantly saying, praise me. What kind of self-centered, insecure being is he that he's constantly needing us to praise him? A couple of arguments against that, a couple of thoughts for us. One is, I think we praise him because it's true. What we say about him is true. If I'm constantly reminding you all to tell me how devastatingly handsome I am, that would not be praise, it would be inaccurate. And it would reflect deep insecurity almost definitely. But in God's case, everything we say about Him is true. Second thing, C.S. Lewis makes a brilliant observation about exactly this point. Lewis says that the Bible calls for our praise of God because it completes our enjoyment of Him. He says, imagine going out one day, Beautiful day. It's 74 degrees, no humidity, light breeze, perfect blue sky, and you're going on a picnic with someone that you love. You find a great spot and there are no bugs. And you sit down, you roll out the picnic. At some point, at least both of you are going to say, at least once, what a fantastic day this is. Lewis makes the point the day is not being egomaniacal because you have called out what a beautiful day it is. In fact, You calling out what a beautiful day it is simply completes your enjoyment of the day. It is almost inevitable. So when we come to know the living God and what he's done for us and who he is, it's almost inevitable for us to go, you are awesome (laughs) and what you've done is amazing. Thank you. Final observation. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but why do we worship on Sunday morning? One of the ways that we worship on S- Sunday occasionally here at Gateway is by participating in God's mercy meal. So why do we worship on Sunday morning? Not all Christians do. There are Christians who worship on Saturday and they make a big deal out of it. If you know anyone who does, they will tell you that you have to worship on Saturday because the Bible says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. What's the Sabbath? To which you have to answer. You have to answer. You may not know this, but the Sabbath is Saturday. Does that, See? Well, here's why Christians worship on Sunday, because it's the day Jesus rose from the dead. And from very early, Christians started gathering on Sunday morning just to remember. You remember how Mary and Martha—they went. The tomb was empty. They came back. They knocked, We didn't even let them in. You didn't even believe them. Well, I, you were even worse. Yeah. Okay, you're right. Yeah, but when he came, we all. It was awesome. And they gathered on Sunday to remember that. Everything had changed. When Jesus rose from the dead, everything changed. The universe is not what we thought it was. Everything opened up. That's why very early on, the church started calling it the Lord's Day. And we gathered regularly on Sunday morning to celebrate the Lord's Day, to celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead, because that was everything. Paul said at one point, some of the people that had become Christians because of him, Paul said to them, you know, when I was with you, I was determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified because everything rises and falls on that. At one point, Paul defends this. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, look, don't let anybody judge you based on a religious festival or Sabbath or, or a new moon celebration. Doesn't matter how you do that stuff. What matters is that your heart is all in in following Jesus Christ and recognizing what He's done. So we get together on Sunday morning because it's the Lord's Day. I want to encourage you strongly as an individual, each of us as individuals, to have a Sabbath in your life. To have a day that you devote to rest. To rest! Yes, Northern Virginians! And to quiet and to stillness and to stop. Maybe for you that Sunday. Maybe for you, that's Saturday. For me, that's Monday. But I want to encourage you to have a, a day of Sabbath. But Sunday, you and I gather together. And For some of you, this is your day. Awesome. Thank you for coming. But we gather together on Sunday morning because this is the Lord's day. This is the day when Jesus rose from the dead. So, we celebrate him here. Let me remind all of us what we celebrate I'm going to go to that Colossians passage in Colossians chapter 2. So, listen to this. This is the Apostle Paul telling us, this both sets us up for Sunday morning worship and it sets us up for this meal that we're about to participate in. Paul often, when he's explaining what happened with Jesus, he uses this kind of legal argument. It's almost like we're going into court and we're finding that there's this terrible debt that we owe because of our sin. Now, some of you have Wrongly been led to believe or you've thought in yourself, okay, well really, I'm not that bad of a person because look at all the good stuff I've done. That's almost like the husband saying to the wife after he's just beat her up. You know, let's forget about that because think of all the good stuff I've done. When we violate God's law, that has universal and eternal consequences that we cannot bear. We cannot live under the weight of that and we cannot reconcile that. And God knew that. God knew that that his creation, human beings, were violating his principles and would be forever separated from him. So this is what Paul says, when you were dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, you were dead. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I'm going to give you an awesome uh, analogy here in a second and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Here's the analogy. Years ago, Humphrey Bogart did a movie where he was a bad guy, and he goes in, and he's holding this uh, family hostage, and he's got a gun pointed at them, and, you know, the family's all distressed. At a certain point, Humphrey Bogart dozes off, the father goes over and takes the bullets out of the gun. And then Humphrey Bogart wakes up and grabs the gun again, and he doesn't know what's happened. Nobody else knows what's happened. They're all asleep. And the father looks at the son, and he says, when I tell you, I want you to run. I want you to go to the back door, and I want you to run, and I want you to go get help. And Humphrey Bogart says, yeah, if you do it, I'm going to fill you with bullets. And so the father looks at the son, and he says, trust me. Run! And the little boy runs, and Humphrey Bogart stands up and goes, click, 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 because the gun is empty. That's what's happened because Jesus died on the cross. All that stands against you is empty. And what happens in your life is click, click, click. And once a week, every Lord's Day, after Jesus was resurrected, Christians would gather together and say, remember, and you know what it means? It means that we're free. That's what we do in worship on Sunday morning here with our whole self. We engage with God on the terms that, in the way that He prescribes, in the way that He alone makes possible because of what He did. And it includes adulation and devotion and reverential acts of worship and submission. All right. So you are invited this morning to cap off our worship with a participation in God's mercy meal. Audiovisual aid reminding us of the tremendous sacrifice and the freedom that's ours. So, if you are visiting us today and you can participate in your fellowship, you can participate here. If you have never made that heart connection with Jesus, then I want to encourage you in the next few moments do that. Don't come without it, but arm yourself with that as you come. To prepare our hearts for this, we're going to do what Christians have done for generations. We're going to confess our sin. We're going to take all of the mess that's in us, and there is mess. You guys are no picnic. We're going to take all the mess that's in us, and we are going to deposit it on him. We're going to vomit on him, and he's going to receive it and cleanse us. And then we're going to confess. We're going to make a declaration of our faith to him. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is us. And blessed be his kingdom, now and forever, amen. Let's confess our sin. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Lord, thank you that you promised us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we receive that this morning. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen say to you, the body of Christ broken for you. It's awesome. And you're going to eat it. And then he's going to say the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll drink it. And then you'll go back to your seat. But let's prepare for that first choir. Let's sing a song. And I want us to sing this song reverentially. So let's sing the first verse of this Beautiful song, and then we'll stand for the chorus. So let's let's be seated.
2: Lord, I come, and I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one. Guns my more. Grace is found, is where you are. And where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in deep choir let's stand together runs deep your grace is more grace is found is way you Christ in
0: go home this morning, let's celebrate. So I'm going to ask the team if they would lead us in a couple of songs of celebration, and you do your thing. Even those of you who were Presbyterians, you put your Pentecostal on. Let's do our thing, and we're going to celebrate him for a moment, and I want you to join in, and then I'll dismiss us.
2: the clouds. He's coming on the clouds, kings and kingdoms will bound. Every chain will break. His broken hearts declare His grace. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God. Fighting our battles, every knee will bow before him. Our God is a lamb, the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. His blood breaks the chains. Every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Every Open up the gate, open up the gate, and wait before the King of kings. God who comes to save, the here to set the captives free, who can stop the Lord? bow before, yeah. our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain, for the sins of the world, His blood breaks the chains, every knee will bow before the Lion.
1: Who can stop?
2: Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord? Let's sing that again. Who can stop? Chains. And every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Every knee will bow before
1: Song. Let's sing this out. Great are you, Lord.
2: Great are you, Lord, mighty and strength. You are faithful, you will ever be. We will praise you all of our days. Send us. Where you send us, God, we will go. You're the answer we want the world to know. We will trust you as you call our name. Out. hallelujah
0: I'm going to say we embarrassed the Pentecostals, but that was pretty good. That's an odd thing, isn't it? At the end, we clap. Let's be sure that we recognize we're clapping to say God is awesome. Amen. Amen. We're not clapping to say good job, although kicking Nate, <laughs> that was really good. And not bad clapping gateway. It must be because we've got a lot more Latins and Africans in here because we have been dysfunctional as clappers for a long time. So thank you guys. It's awesome. Thanks so much for coming. Go in peace.